I want you to look at a chart from the CDC that may surprise you. This is the odds of death from the coronavirus. Look at it. Take a picture of it. Your phones take pictures. Zero to 19, 99.997, 20 to 49, 50 to 69, 70 plus. What does that say to you if you finish the second grade? What does it say? That's CDC figures. Have you seen that very much? Very little? Huh. Interesting, isn't it? You know, we have a greater risk of dying of Indonesian St. Vitus dance, whatever that is, <laughs> than almost we do of Corona. So perhaps in the near future, the puppet dictators that seemingly control science and how we live will stumble upon the statistics of the CDC. I'm in Barracuda Waters. We're in a war, we all recognize that. We'll discover who our enemy is. We'll discover the strategy of the enemy. We'll discover the battlefield upon which we will fight. And I can tell you something, we'll discover how we can be victorious. We're in a battle, last week I talked about the battle for life. How so many females have given that unborn to abortion, but I also added the wonderful word of grace. There is forgiveness and there is cleansing and in heaven those mothers will be reunited with those babies and what would heaven be like without babies? That's the grace of God. Today we're in another kind of battle in our culture, a battle in which to be honest with you, we have by and large already lost, and most of us have put up the white flag. Would you kneel with me as we prepare to look at the book? Father, trying days, difficult days, Days in which communication doesn't mean so much. Days in which justice 
is either not applied or not understood when it is applied. Days that speak of lawlessness, unrest, sickness, in which our land is divided with two distinctly worldviews that can never come together in harmony. Lord, we see the only, only hope we have is for revival from the top to the bottom, like was experienced there in Nineveh when Jonah proclaimed, repent or else, repent or else. And Lord, we know we're under your hand. We know your sovereign will is being lived out in among us and through us. May we be warriors on your side in the numerous battles in which we find ourselves. Right now, Father, Holy Spirit, you speak. Let me get out of the way so that thy word alone might be heard. We pray through Jesus Christ, our living, loving Lord. Amen. Kevin Cochran was born in a project in Shreveport, Louisiana. He was one of six children brought up by his mother who worked two jobs. They lived on welfare. And he came up in an impoverished home. Cochran said that Many times, all they'd have to eat was a piece of bread and mayonnaise. He said, we'd have bread and mayonnaise for breakfast, bread and mayonnaise for lunch, and said at night, we'd have toasted bread and mayonnaise, which is sort of a special meal for us. He said, we were so poor, we felt sometimes that our power would be cut off, and it was, and we had candles available so we could see said, more than once, we weren't able to pay our water bill. And he said, we would fill everything in the house with water so we'd have water when we finally got enough money to have the water cut back on. He said, I know what it is to live in poverty. But he said, every Sunday, my mother got up dressed all six of the children and we were in Bible study and church I can't go this week, Pastor, because, you know, uh, I have those two children in the morning. How many times have we heard that? How many times have we? I can't go because we've got company that's coming into our house. Every morning she got up, dressed six children, and went to Bible study in church. And he said, they came home from church one Sunday. Cochran said that he heard fire trucks coming. And they all went to the window and looked outside and they said, Miss Sue's house was on fire. Said, I watched those fire trucks come. 
those big red trucks and saw those men get out in those uniforms and saw them roll out, roll out the hose and attach it there and go back there and fight that fire and put it out. He said, I saw my neighbor come out and hug them and congratulate them and thank them for saving their house. He said, I went outside and told my mama, let me tell you, when I grow up, I'm gonna be a fireman. He said, I've never lost that vision. Said at church, I talked to a man that spent some time and had an interest in me, and I told him I want to be a fireman. What should I do? And he said, Kevin, it's easy what you do. You study hard. You be respectful. And you continue to follow the Lord God Jesus Christ, and your dream will come true. He said, It did. He said, I finished school. I went to work for the Shreveport Fire Department. And guess what? In 10 years, he was fire chief in Shreveport. The mayor of Atlanta was looking for a fire chief and heard about the excellent job that he had done in Shreveport and went down and invited to become fire chief of the largest city in the South. Had over 1,100 employees, $140 million budget, and he was superior. All of his troops loved him. Everybody honored him. He continued with his wife and family in church, and he taught a, a men's Bible study class and discipled a lot of men. He was popular, a leader, humble, well-liked. Barack Obama was elected president. He was looking for someone to be the fire chief of the United States of America, and he heard about Chief Cochran there in Atlanta, and he went and invited him to come to Washington. And there, Chief Cochran excelled. He worked with Homeland Security. He worked there in all the fire departments of America. He trained, I don't know how many people, in times of terrorism and SOS times, and he was superior, out of sight, well-respected, received multiple, multiple honors. But a new, a new mayor was elected in Atlanta, Mayor Reed, and she said, we want you to come back. <laughs> Atlanta, we, we need you in Atlanta. And finally she twisted his arm and he resigned and went back to Atlanta, back in his church. And he wrote a book for men, how to live their life with the Lord. In this book, he gave the biblical view of marriage and, and all the areas of sexuality. The book was published for a year, well read, until someone from the LGBTQ community read it and said, this man, our fire chief in Atlanta, he can't believe like this with all the lifestyles that we now have. And there was a protest to the mayor and the mayor put Chief Cochran on a month's leave until the mayor investigated and talked with the employees, all the people, and saw there was no discrimination for any reason. Race, belief, sexual choice, no discrimination. But still, as he went back on the job, the pressure continued and the mayor fired Chief Cochran and kicked him to the curb. 
Remember the Atlanta City Council said, paraphrase, we can't have someone in the city's employ who does not reference and follow what we believe in leadership. You say, well, that's a rare case. My goodness, it's dramatic. It seems to be unfair. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Go to any corporation, any business, big or small, most of them will tell you in their IR department, employee relationships, human resources, they'll tell you they face this all the time and countless thousands and thousands of people have lost their job, been forced out of their job because of this kind of intolerance. Let me tell you something. There was once a day when you were applying for a job or going into university or whatever you were looking for, you'd fill an application and it would say religion and you would say Christian. And you'd say, boy, that that will help me get that job. That will help me uh, move out. That'll help me be accepted. Not so today. No, no, no. So therefore, all the cultural Christians who felt that being a Christian, being in the church, being active, that was all good for their future. But now that is not the case, ladies and gentlemen. That is absolutely not the case. This is the kind of world in which we live in. This is the sexual revolution that we're seeing. When words are being redefined, marriage is being redefined, father, mother is being redefined. All of this has just exploded in front of us seemingly with zigzag lightning speed. Where do you start? Where did man's sexual revolution begin? Let me give a little precursor. Time Magazine in 1964 asked the question, what does sexual guilt mean to you? Ask it to a lot of people. What is sexual guilt? In 1964, the answers came back many ways, but most of them overwhelming said, it means when you break certain moral laws dealing with sex. That's sexual guilt, 1964. Time Magazine asked the same question recently and said, what does sexual guilt mean to you And the answers came back over and over again saying, not enough sex. Sexual guilt in 64 meant this. Sexual guilt today in the eyes of the public means this. What happens, we become a totally godless, basically society in which God has been like Chief Cochran was kicked to the curb. He's no longer convenient. He's no longer popular. He's no longer accepted. He's been kicked to the curb. Some years ago, David Frost was interviewing Madeline Murray O'Hare. Remember her, the 
infamous atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare, and she was saying to David Frost, man, there is no God, and she was giving her case for being no God, and Frost was saying, oh, yes, there's a God, oh, yes, and finally Frost stopped her and said, I want to show you that most everybody believes in God, and he asked the audience there, how many of you believe in God, and almost every hand went up. How many of you believe there's a God? All the hands went up. Madeline Murray O'Hare continued to debate, but if she had said this, follow me, she didn't say this, if she'd been thinking, you know what she'd have said? Well, let me ask the audience another question. Do you believe that God came in fire on Sinai and gave 10 commandments as to how we are to live? Do you believe in a God who visited this earth in human flesh and died on a tree, died on a cross, so his blood would save all of us. Do you believe in a God who has called upon his sons and daughters to live a certain kind of lifestyle, which is surrender to him? Do you believe if she had asked that to the audience in the God of the Bible? I don't believe many hands would have gone up, you see. I don't believe many. If God is out there, up there, somehow, God, I'll call on you if I need you. Oh, we believe, most of us, in some kind of supernatural power, but a God that asks for surrender and life and more. Oh, no, hey, I don't want that kind of God. That's not the kind of God I believe in. This is the foundation that gave us room to have a sexual revolution that is somewhat astounding. Well, when did this revolution begin in America? Or we could go back to Plato and Socrates and talk about postmodernism, talk about Gnosticism when the body was important. But let's start a little sooner than that. I think it began in 1960 with the onset of the pill now, don't misunderstand me. Listen carefully. I'm sorry you have to think today. I apologize for that. With the pill, don't think that I don't believe in contraception. No, don't interpret that. But it was the pill that did something that had never really happened in history. Marriage is for what? Procreation, pleasure, and a symbol of the bridegroom coming for us as the bride, the church, and a symbol of our relationship that we have in Jesus Christ. Marriage is that symbol that is biblically used. But when you took out for the first time in history the possibility virtually of procreation, whole new world, that's what the pill did. Whole new world. And all of a sudden, moving into this, Name a lot of things, Woodstock. There ever was a tragic story of debauchery. It was Woodstock. 500, 600,000 kids, three days, unbelievable debauchery. Then Playboy came out, Penthouse came out. Media began to explode with, with things there on television and movies and radio. And here we go. Then for some science to be thrown in, you have Kinsey, who was an absolutely immoral, crazy kook 
any way you describe a human being. My father-in-law was a student when he was a professor at the University of Indiana. He said we laughed at him because he was a thoroughgoing pseudo-idiot. And he gave the Kinsey Report. Everybody said, well, this is really science. This is how America handles all kinds of sexuality. And he was absolutely, totally felonious. Then you have Masters and Johnson. Then you have some kind of scientific evidence that, you know, here we are in our world. And by 1970, virtually, I said virtually, by the way, don't parse out everything I say. say. Boy, he didn't mention this. He left out that. No, no, no. You can't be exhaustive in this three-hour sermon I'm going to give you today. <laughs> so understand that, okay? And then we come to so many other watershed moments. In 1970, virtually all the laws, state, federal laws that dealt with sexual were virtually obliterated. We have a few with pedophilia left, but don't be mistaken. All the laws concerning any kind of restraints on human sexuality in the very near future, unless we do a radical revival about faith, will be obliterated and sex will be flattened out. Most of humanity will be jaded and will lose significance. That is the goal. Don't be misled. And so we move all the way up till today, until 2013. We have same-sex marriage, which I will talk about marriage next time. And same-sex marriage is totally impossible. Tune in. We'll stay in the battle next week. So here we are in the society in which we live. And what has happened? I'll tell you what has happened. Uh, do you believe that a dead thing will make you happy? In our sexualized culture, a lot of people believe that a dead thing can make you happy. Anybody believe that? Sure we do. Let me show you how this is expressed in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number two, the first verse reads, and you were dead. Remember I said, do dead, does a dead thing make you happy? You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And then in verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we have the idea that all sorts of immoral activity, doing my own thing, making my own decisions, running my own life, deciding what's right and wrong, there are no absolutes, expressing myself sexually anytime, anywhere, anyway, with anybody, those are things that we practice in all kinds of disturbed ways and they are dead things. Did you get that? Sin is a dead thing. It's not a living thing. And we have the idea that a dead thing, expressing our own life in our own terms, will make us happy. And it never has and it never will. This is sort of part of the results, the bottom line of a totally 
sexualized society move from any kind of moral foundation and roots. So we see man's sexual revolution, but I want us to put it juxtaposed with God's sexual revelation. What does the book say about the whole area of sexuality? We have the idea, they tell us, well, you're in the church, y'all don't like body, y'all don't like sex. Man, y'all are just reserved back there. You're a bunch of Puritans. How stupid, erroneous is that really? God gave us our sexuality. God provided for intimacy in marriage that is beautiful. If we could have children by moving wax from a male ear to the wax in a female ear, God could have done it, couldn't he? No big deal to God if he speaks in creation. Man, that would be the way procreation would take place, wouldn't it? But he didn't, he didn't do it like that. Where did marriage come from? Genesis. God created man and woman in his own image, right? And the beautiful picture there of a rib out of Adam was formed into Eve, and they didn't become two individual beings very long until they became one. And then we have marriage performed by God himself in the Garden of Eden. And what is it? What was marriage? He said, two became one. And what followed up was what happened in marriage. They were naked and unashamed. Leave. They left everything. Ever le marriage is when your mate, the one that you are united with for life, is the number one consideration of everything in your life. You leave every other relationship Father, mother, even children, brother, sister, friends, you leave everything else. Leave. Exclusivity. Man, woman, together, leave. Then you cleave. And the word there is like, like super glue. You, know, you, you cleave. You, you can't let go. Of you. you are one. And by the way, don't spend a lot of time trying to find out which one you are. You're neither one, we're both. We're feminine and we're male, male and female. We are one. We leave, we cleave, we become one flesh, a whole new personality, a whole new being. And then you're naked and you have no shame, total vulnerability. This is marriage. This is marriage. And we see it pictured so many times in the scripture, but the picture that I just love so wonderfully is found in 1 Corinthians chapter number six. Listen, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? By the way, it could be read in the feminine area, the masculine area. Don't get caught up in that kind of silliness. For he says that two shall become one flesh. 
but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. Then he says, flee, run immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body, follow me, but the immoral man or woman sins against their own body. Here's the verse, 19, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We said that life is sacred, sex is holy. Life is sacred, sex is holy, and it says here, our body is a temple of God, and sex in a body and a marriage relationship is in the holy of holies. That's that private place there. And what is it? We have been bought with a price. Our sins have been paid for. We have been bought back. Therefore, in marriage, there is celebration, there is freedom, there is joy. And we'll see later on this verse. I'll touch on it next week. Wives, when you got married, you no longer own your body. Men, when you got married, you no longer own your body. Your body is owned by your mate. If a lot of marriages would really practice this taught right here in this same chapter, man, marriages would take on new dimensions right now. Right now. And then we see, well, what is permission? What do we have? Sexuality. What is sex? The Bible says in marriage, there's celebration, there's joy, that, that's a beautiful, beautiful, intimate relationship. We described it. But the Bible also says any sex, listen, any sexual expression, immoral expression outside of marriage, a man and a woman is pornea, pornea. And pornea is under the judgment of God and pornea in any kind of dimension will sap the joy and the strength and the life of anybody who lives a life of pornea. That is, fornication, sex outside of marriage. Adultery, sex other than with your marriage partner. That is, same-sex attraction and same-sex relationship that follows up that attraction. LBGTQ, et cetera. And you, anything with sex outside of marriage is pornea and it's under the judgment of God. Say, boy, I don't like that. You got a problem with the Bible. You don't have a problem with me. You got a problem with the Bible. And so we see under all of this, we have been bought with a price. You know what the word pornea means? It means to be sold out. We give ourselves to pornea we are sold out to pornea. We're sold out to the flesh. And, and then by the same token, the Bible teaches that Christ has bought us back. We were sold, he's bought us back and he has restored us. And therefore sex is holy. It is separate exclusively in marriage. Now, where does the church fit in? 
How do we live, perform, respond to all the challenges we have, particularly the area of sexuality? How does the church come in? How do we get in the middle of this? Well, first of all, people outside the church, (laughs) they're not interested whether or not what we teach is true. They really are not, most of them. Whether the Bible is true, Jesus came back from the dead, was raised by the Father, that's not what people outside the church are interested in. You know what they say? Why are you so bigoted? That's what they say. Why are you and the church so narrow, so bigoted? That's what they say. We have to understand, and many of us yet do not get this, who are in the church and know the Lord Jesus Christ, that that can never be a part of who we are because bigotry, it can never be a part of the body of Christ. Now, what else do they say? I want you to look at this on the board. They say that we are legalistic. What does that mean? Those outside the church, look at us, with our clear biblical stand on sexuality and many other things, they say, well, you're legalistic up there. We're not legalistic. Legalism was Judaism. They had 200-something laws written in the Old Testament, some 300-plus interpretation of those laws, and they were burdened down. And we're getting some of this now. There is this vocabulary, vocabulary problem. Somebody says something and Boy, you said this, you used the wrong word there. My goodness, you're so bigoted. Uh, I've told you this before. I had a funeral here some years ago when uh, our female professional basketball team had won the national championship and the, the point guard on there, whom I knew, wonderful little lady, sweet little Christian, had cancer and died and I had the funeral right here. People were everywhere. And in the funeral, I said, you know, she was a great little gal, great little gal. Well, I went back to my office, my phones were on fire. You called her a gal. I said, look, I called my wife a gal. Do you not know the song, as for me and my gal, where have you been? I'm not gonna let you take gal out of my vocabulary. I meant that with the highest esteem. You see, you got this vocabulary monsters. You see it in the marketplace. You say the wrong thing the wrong time. My goodness, man, you'll be called to the office. So the bottom line is, we are not legalistic. Uh, legalism is keeping all those rules and laws. What did Jesus say in Matthew 11? I'll paraphrase it. I'll paraphrase. He said, come follow me. He said, take me in yourself. Hang out with me, in other words. And he said, you'll find freedom and joy and meaning and value and fun and significance. You won't be burdened down with all these little don't do this, don't say that, don't go there, that Judaism did. He said, I'm not a legalist. Christianity can never be defined by what you don't do and what you do. Well, I don't do this and I do that. There never is defined like that. It's that relationship with Christ. 
Therefore, we are not legalists. We do not fall under that area. Also, they say, well, you're hypocritical. You know, you, 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 you say one thing and you live another way, and I know there's someone who is a quote Christian, end quote Christian, and their language and what they do and how they act and what they've done. You, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. Let me tell you something. In a degree, none of us live up to all that we profess and believe, but we're in the path of seeking to live up to it, are we not, if we're in Christ? It's like judging the impossible dream. You know the song? To dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable. Now, if I would sing that, you might say, you know, I don't like that song. Yeah. Ah, that song. But bring our guy Jeff out. Huh. Let him sing. To dream. He'd say, boy, I love that song. What was the problem? With the song? Not with the singer. In hypocrisy, where's the problem? It's with you and me. It's not that which we're going to be and that which we ought to be, but thank God we're not what we used to be. It's not the printer. We, we, we are hypocrites in a sense, but they understand that we're on a path of sanctification. So that charge against us just will not stand. And then what's the other word up there? Judgmental. Well, up the church, they're so judgmental, they're going to judge me and judge me about that. <laughs> the Bible says, you shall not judge. I shall not judge. Now, understand, God has already judged some things, so we don't have to do a lot of judgment, do we? God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's already been settled, right? God has pronounced judgment on so many of these moral things. What God has judged, it is there. But we're not to judge, we're not qualified. Only God can do that. God has already judged some things. We read it in the book, that which he has judged, but we're not in the judgmental business. That's not who we are as members of the family of God, to point those fingers out there. And finally, the thing those outside the church say most about us you up there, you are so intolerant. Oh, from those who are 18 to 35, that is the thing, the charge we hear. You are intolerant up there. Let me say something. We accept in the body of Christ anybody and everybody from every kind of background, every kind of sexual decision, every time of race, creed, culture. We accept anybody and everybody. We accept all. That's who the church is. There's no entity, any person alive that we do not accept in the church. Nobody. Let me give you a description here. And, and I love this right back there in Corinthians. And Paul is talking about, he says, those who do not inherit the kingdom of God. Now imagine a church made up of people like this. Would we accept all those people here? Listen at it. He said, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, sex outside of marriage, nor effeminate, goes up, talks about idolatrous, or homosexuals, sex with the same gender, nor thieves, 
nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at this list. How'd you like to have a church full of, look at the list, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, lesbians, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, party revelers, swindlers, they'll not inherit. How'd you have like have a church come? Would we welcome all those people there and say, we accept you, we accept you, and we will seek to love you, care for you, and listen to you, and counsel you, and befriend you any way we can. Would we accept a group like that? Let's get honest, folks. That was the makeup of the church at Corinth. Oh, oh, my goodness. Paul says, you'll not inherit the kingdom, but he says, but such were some of you in the church here now, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We could make a list just like that if we looked at all of us here, couldn't we? You think we couldn't find all of that right here in church today? I guarantee you we could. I'd be on that list, you'd be on that list, different ways, different, different sins. Yeah, yeah, that could describe us. But thanks to God, that's who you used to be and that's not who you are. Therefore, we are in the accepting business. But because we accept all people, it does not mean we applaud or we approve of all people. Acceptance, those in some areas of sin, thinks it means approval. And that's what about three-fourths of the churches in this city and in America have done. They have approved, trying to be culturally accepted and we stand on biblical principles and say simply, we will seek to love and care and listen and help you any way we can. But acceptance is not synonymous with approval. You see, that's the Christian ethic in which we must be a part of. The biblical view, the church's view as how we handle the sexual revolution which we're in. And the bottom line, we'd better stand up and speak the truth in love because we are in a battle for the very heart and soul and the moral fiber of our nation. And right now we're losing the battle in sex. man by the name of Brian Campbell, along with three other friends in Ohio. Brian was decided to go on a camping trip with three of his buddies, and they went to the Red Gulch Canyon, Kentucky. Red Gulch River Canyon, beautiful place in Kentucky. They went there to camp out, four guys from Ohio. And as they camped out, if you read about it, Brian Campbell pitched a hammock between two trees and got in it, went to sleep before his buddies. It was right on the precipice there, dropping down in the, in the canyon. 
And his buddies saw him get up out of the hammock, began to walk around. They realized that, you know, Brown is sleepwalking. <laughs> and so he's walking around, sleepwalking. And he gets to the edge and nobody says anything to him and whoosh, he falls over down to the gulch. Man, they run over there and look down and they see that fortunately he'd fallen six feet, 60 feet down, but he landed in a tree that saved him. And they called 911 and the rescue people came and took them about an hour to get there. And they, they went down there, rappelled down another 30 minutes or so. And they took a basket down and they put him in it. He was still alive, miraculously. Put him in the basket. They were lifting up about halfway up. He, he, he was knocked out. He, he awoke, awoke. He woke up and he looked around and boy, saw what had happened. And man, he was just astounded. And, and they brought him back up and they, they saved him. And they asked his friends. They said, look, you saw him. He was sleepwalking. He didn't know what he was doing. And you see, he was on the edge. You see, he could fall off. Why didn't you warn him? And they said, we didn't want to scare him. We didn't want to scare him. Listen, listen, folks. There's a lot of people sleepwalking. Family, friends, children, son, daughter, neighbor, cohorts, people we've known. They're just sleepwalking through all of this, saying we hope by some magical way all the moral challenge will be just dissipate. Listen, we have a call under God to sound a warning and speak the truth in love because they will sooner or later fall off into the cliff and be obliviated. That's our call. Isn't it interesting that what saved him from death is the very same thing that saved you and me. Isn't it interesting? The same thing that saved him is exactly what saved you and me. A tree. A tree. 